I'm Mari Dangerfield, and you're listening to Sound of Stylus, a podcast all about the stylophone and the people who do cool things with it. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Leah Cardos, uh, who's Leah Cardos of also the Kingston University Stylophone Orchestra. Leah Cardos is an extraordinary woman bursting with vision, as well as being an artist in her own right and leader of the unique Kingston University Stylophone Orchestra. She is senior lecturer in music at Kingston University, project leader of Visconti Studio, co-founded with Tony Visconti, and a published author with Words in the Wire and her recently released first book, Black Star Theory, The Last Works of David Bowie. I've known Leah since around 2015. Um, She was offering advice for my dissertation at university, which was on David Bowie. Um, And now she's here to join us on the podcast to talk about the orchestra, Bowie, and of course, stylophones. Leah, great to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's, um, it feels like it's been such a long time coming, kind of having any kind of discussion with you on this topic that we're we really share a lot in common with, I think. No, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. And I'm very honoured to be your guest. So let's talk about your kind of journey, your story with the stylophone. Um, This goes back to about 2019. um, So where we're talking about the stylophone orchestra. Um, That's right. Yeah. so, So how did it all start out with the orchestra? Like, how did it get going? So it just sort of began as, I guess, uh, a, a goof or just a, an experiment. A goof's probably not giving it the credence it deserves, but I was given um, a bunch of stylophones by the Debrec company, and they happened to be at the university because Tony was at the university at that time. Right. And they were working with him on a special 50th anniversary of the stylophone Um project I think it was a competition where they were asking people to make music using a stylophone and he was going to be the judge and so that was all happening and um, I happened to be at the uni when they visited and we got to talking and Debrec seemed to be interested in donating instruments to us partly for music education purposes so we could Mm -hmm. um, train our music education students in how to use them in classrooms, but also there were some vintage instruments that they wanted to donate to us as well for our archive. Um, And I just saw all those instruments and I thought, wouldn't it be fun to try and make a group, an ensemble, um, to see what it would sound like. And I kind of blurted that out and and then (laughs) decided to try it um, that academic year. And we didn't really know how it would sound or what it would be or what we'd play. But, um, you know, um, and, you know, whenever there's the sort of, fun projects just sort of staring you in the face like that you'd be silly not to do it so that's where it started for me but of course I was aware of stylophones anyway because they were the quirky instrument that was associated with Bowie and um, I've Mm. got deep interest and deep fandom of Bowie myself Mm. so um, I've always wanted to play with them and it was a really good excuse to do so. So it's like your Bowie kind of another side to your Bowie fandom was able to emerge and kind of coming up with this amazing idea. Like you're presented with all these instruments and then you're like, why not? Let's make a group. <laughs> <laughs> why not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that seems to be the story of my academic career in a nutshell, really. It's kind of, um, you know, research is is driven by your interests. Naturally, every 
music researcher is the same. Uh, but for me specifically, my day job at uni and my research interests as a musicologist and creator mm-hmm. um, and my fandom, you know, the music that I'm really passionate about tend to be a Venn diagram that meet in the middle a lot yeah. of the time, which I feel really lucky about. I feel very fortunate to, you know, be uh, working with Visconti Studio and to be playing with Dubrecht's instruments and having partnership with them. Uh, and to be writing about Bowie, as well as, you know, just making music myself. Um, all of that ticks a lot of boxes for me as a as a musician and an, in, and an intellectual. So, yeah, I feel very lucky. But at the same time, you know, I think if you're curious, you, it'll be true, true for you as well, Mari, I think that, you know, when you're mm-hmm. curious and interested in something, it tends to pop up in your life. Yeah. Um, it tends to, be, yeah. to become an opportunity as you mm-hmm. kind of invite it in a way. I think that's true as well. I actually don't know if you know this, but um, on that topic, um, from like being in touch with Marcella and John for a while, it was like that time, like you were saying, the competition and stuff. Um, I remember there was the golden stylophone as the prize. It was this S1 painted with gold paint. (laughs) I don't know who won that (laughs) in the end, actually. Um, I've never seen it. I've been... I kept my eyes open. I thought it'd show up somewhere on a YouTube video or something. Yeah, and it it's such a cool thing. Like, why did it not? I don't know. They do have this thing about wanting to donate instruments and stuff. They're really good in that way. Like, they really want to do good as well with the company and help um, people who want to start learning music. Because, like, the stylophone is such an accessible thing, right? Um, it's a great yeah. starting point for many people into music. Um, it's really good for teaching. I mean, um, I do a module at Kingston called Music and Technology in Education. Right, yeah. And one of the things I do every year with them is I give them all the stylophone and I say, look, at this amazing tool. And a lot of them sort of stare at it, like not knowing what to do. And and there's like, you can do intervals with it. You can learn by rote. You can do melodic dictation. If you stand back to back with me and I play something and you follow, you know, there's so many ways that um, particularly melodic based music training um, and rounds and, and playing it as a rhythm instrument. And it's just so accessible and it's so affordable. It's, you know, it's, it's small. You can get a lot of them in a room and do so many things with them. Um, I think, I hope that teachers, music teachers start using them in classrooms because they're not just yeah. toys, you know, they're instruments. Um, yeah, and I think there's lots of potential there, definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully there'll be more uptake in, in schools, like primary yeah. schools especially. Like a lot of children, like their first instrument might be the recorder or the piano, but why not start with the stylophone? <laughs> that could be the <laughs> I agree. Thing. It has a volume control. I mean, recorders don't. Yeah, exactly. It's just one loud, annoying, <laughs> yes. essentially, sound. Exactly. Um, plus, you can plug some earphones. Well, you could, with the old model at least, plug some earphones in and keep quiet. Disturb <laughs> everyone. <laughs> True. Um, but yeah, um, like as I was saying with like the like the donations and stuff, um, I do remember like having a clear like discussion with Marcella about is there anywhere do you know like that you think could benefit from stuff and I don't know if it was like me or if it was Tony or it was like I don't know where it happened but I'd like to think like maybe I helped you to to gain the instruments because I did remember maybe you did maybe you were our guardian angel (laughs) I don't know I don't want to like say anything but maybe I don't know it might have been Tony as well Here's something I don't think I've ever asked you. Um, you discovered David Bowie when? 
I don't know how interesting it is. My fan origin story. I don't know if you're interested in that. Um, but I did. I discovered Bowie at uni when I was at university, which was okay. in 1998. And uh-huh. I joined BowieNet at that time. Um, and my music background was quite classical, quite it was quite sort of, I was really into jazz and I was really into musicians that um, could play really well. So I was really into chops and like virtuosity and um, Mm -hmm. clever, clever music. Um, But when I was introduced to Bowie's um, performance style, uh, I realized that there was a lot more to pop music than just how clever it is or how difficult it is to play. It was a lot about the storytelling and the embodiment and the drama and the, um, and then the voice and, and how theatrical that is, but also how the whole lyric, music, arrangement, production, visual aspect all go together to, to create something bigger than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then from there I went back and discovered all the other stuff. So that would have been around Earthling time. Like I joined okay. the, the train. Nice. And then from there I went backwards, but I was also there for the, all of the late works. So I was there as everything came out after that. Um, awesome. but, but yeah and I wish I could do that again actually like I'm I'm always jealous of people that discover Bowie and, and you know they're like where shall I begin and I'm like oh you're in for a good you're in for a good few years of discovery here <laughs> and I can't wait till you discover things like Station to Station or Low or Scary mm-hmm. Monsters or Young Americans like I'm so jealous of people that have that <laughs> ahead of them to get to like start their journey all over from the beginning and experience oh my everything. gosh yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But Earthling, what a what a period to start with. Well, it was this, yeah, and also like I had a, my best friend at uni. We were into Bowie at the same time, discovering Bowie at the same time, and um, we we got Earthling, and we were like, oh my god, and we discovered drum and bass from it, and all the remixes. Right. There was a big remix mm-hmm. culture around Bowie's Bowie's work at that time, so okay. we got into Roni Size, and we got into. Um, tricky and we got into the bands he was into at the time placebo and uncle and all this and then um we were so excited for the next album and then it was ours <laughs> and it was like this thing of like what yeah. what is this and you know <laughs> it was um it was a very like sort of uh, authentic bowie fan moment of being completely spun around um completely taken um a slap in the face almost stylistically yeah. okay oh okay now I've got to totally like think about this differently now um but yeah it was a wonderful time to be a fan of course Bowie Net was a exciting thing as well back then right. Bowie Net, that's like yeah. a whole era that I guess I missed out on because that was- yeah and it's hard to imagine it now as well because like it really was like just this sort of message board essentially in a chat room and um and and sort of Bowie was involved with it so he would create content to share with the fans um, in the forms of like blog posts questions he'd ask like Q&A um, wow. and he'd show up on the boards himself and like chat uh, and there'd be like scheduled chats as well and sometimes he'd just pop in the chat mm-hmm. his name was Sailor and so you always knew oh, okay. that's what that was him and that was a an anagram of Isola which is his um his company Whoa, and uh, really it was that. just bizarre to have that access, you know, because um, particularly in the late period and the, and the last period, he just was so inaccessible. Um, right, yeah. Whereas back then it was very normal, um, or at least that performance was, I, you know, who knows what the performance of Bowie uh, is actually all about, but um, certainly his engagement with the fandom was very different back then That's in quite a special time. Yeah, yeah, and I'm friends with a lot of those people still to this day as well. Really? Oh. 
so it like yeah. opened a whole world to you of mutual friendships and absolutely yeah and I was in Australia and of course he hadn't been to Australia the, since like the late 80s um but he hadn't played a gig and since this glass spider tour and then he came back for reality but of course in between he hadn't been for so long and there was no one I knew aside from my friend at uni who was a Bowie netter okay. um and so I was just thinking I want to get to the UK I want to get to America I want to see see uh-huh. these gigs because he's on tour so much through that period that time you know um yeah, and it was it was a really great way of making friends. Back when I was, you know, a university student in Australia, mm-hmm. I'm still friends with these people today. Now, a 43 year old woman in wow. London, I still hang out with these people. So it's quite Amazing. special, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? When you find a special interest and people that share that, you're kind of going to bond for life. I think sometimes it's yeah. just one of those things. That's so yeah, awesome. it just. It, yeah, and it's it's it is a lovely thing. You know, I've got friends in America who I see every few years if I travel there. But we, I know I'm going to be close with them. You know, so long as we are in contact, and it's nice. You know, and um, and and yeah, I think these days I don't know so much how those communities can. I mean, I'm sure they do. They have to because they're very mm-hmm. organic. But um, the way that Bowie it was was it was quite a closed off community. Okay. Um, in the sense that people had to subscribe to it. It was expensive. You know, it was, it was, it was a bit of a privileged right. community. Oh, people had to okay. subscribe to this thing, mm-hmm. but it felt like it was quite unique and, and special. Whereas now there's a lot of like groups, fan groups that exist on Facebook pages or in discords and things like that, but mm-hmm. they seem to be, and Reddit, I suppose, but they seem quite short lived in the sense that the, okay. the communities tends to refresh itself or move on or um, doesn't seem to be a permanent fixture. Although I could be wrong. Maybe it's just me being old and, and not connected. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I think social media has changed the landscape of um, of these communities and, and the, the speed of their lives, I suppose. I definitely online. agree. It's amazing that he was kind of preceding social media with that kind of group, almost like a social media slash Patreon membership, it sounds kind of, like. Yeah, it was that. It was, um, it was kind of Patreon. And it was also um, totally prefiguring the the model now of like where celebrities need to create content to keep their fans happy, um, yeah. which is now the norm, right? For exactly, for good for good yeah. or bad, yeah. Yeah, for good or bad, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it's so cool that you got to be a part of it. So you discovered Bowie at uni. Um, what about the stylophone, like along that? journey of discovering Bowie was it the same time was it much later was it before oh it was much later um I think I think I honestly I knew I knew about them and um I just never had one until uh I would say 2013 ish um when I started playing in, in in a band in London, um, James Ewers's band, he was called Lone Sound at the time, and I was okay. playing keyboard for him, synthesizer, and oh, just nice. extra bits. And he handed me a stylophone one day, and the melodica, and a few other bits and pieces um, to play in his band. And um, that's when I finally had one. Okay. And um, I played it, and it, you know, up until that point, I just thought, oh yeah, it's just a little synth, you know, I understand. Um, but obviously, when you play it. Um, its mode of engagement as as a musician is is really unique and it mm-hmm. influences what sounds you want to make on it which i did i wasn't expecting that at all i just thought like being a keyboard player i thought present me with anything that's keyboard based 
I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, with the stylophone, it is just that little bit different and a little bit alien as an instrument, mm-hmm. which and that and delicate to play, but indelicate in sound, and and that's a very strange combination. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To to work with. Um, which I found really quite interesting and it's beguiling actually because that's the quality that you want to lean into with it, which is the thing that I believe Bowie did correctly with the instrument in that he lent into that quality of it, whereas you hear it in other places and it seems simply just copying a guitar or, okay. you know, it's just doing something really rudimentary. I think yeah. he made it sing in a, in, in, a, in a way that made it quite melancholy and emotional, which I think is... Is, is exactly what that instrument is screaming out for. But, you know, I think the best music that Stylophone uses leans into that. I think that's a really important part of its, um, its timbre. And I think, you know, um, you hear, like, bands that have used it or, um, you know, like Jack White or whatever, and it's just like this edge to a bigger riff or it's just this edge on top of a bigger sound that they've used it for. But... Mm-hmm. When you hear like ensemble stylophones or a stylophone solo that's been performed on the instrument with some care, um, you realise that the music is shaped by the attack that's instant, but the sustain mm-hmm. that's that that is constant. But then that the fact that you've got this very delicate instrument across that quite brutal sound is what shapes the melodic content around it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's part of the secret of its beauty in, in a way but it takes a particular type of musician to play it that way certainly that's one of the fascinating little uh gray areas of the instrument that I really quite enjoy exploring okay. with the orchestra um and trying to sort of play around with I mean and also the thing that I'm interested in which is still a question mark for me okay. is what is you know what does it sound like when we've got 50 of them I really want to hear a big ensemble and we tried to do that on the record, you know, we, we multi-tracked mm-hmm. it loads of times and it was a cool sound on record, but that's different to um, in real life. So I'm very mm-hmm. keen to try and get stylophones on mass, like a really massed chorus of them just to see whether that's the beautiful sound I imagine in my head that it is, this kind of yeah, I imagine. delicate chorus of just the thinnest, you know, razor sharp noises but if you've got loads of them does it have a softness to it i think it might yeah um, yeah i think you could be right um uh, maybe you'll have to do like a guinness world record or something the most stylophonists <laughs> in a field <laughs> that'd be a good thing i mean yes uh, i i think um that's one of the dreams for the orchestra is just to recruit lots and lots of people i think it's time for us to move on and chat about okay. this oh yes yeah. For anyone who, who can't see, because that's everybody, is the Stylophonica <laughs> album, the first album from the Kingston University Stylophone Orchestra. Um, what made you decide to release an album? How did how did it all get going? So the seeds for the idea were sown when we did the Space Oddity session you were there for, okay. um, which was in. September 2019 so like the group had been going for nearly a year since the January anyway Um, Mm -hmm. and it was something I really wanted to do to mark the occasion just because of the tie-in of the instrument the cultural significance of the song and the instrument and the date and the fact we had Tony there I just thought we have to do this so that was perfect yeah yeah, it was just a perfect confluence of um, of things so we knocked that arrangement together we did the session which was great. And the song, we did the video, it was lots of fun. And um, mm-hmm. it was just going to be that. We were just going to do that one thing. But then when the pandemic sort of unfolded, 
a few months later, um, the group couldn't rehearse. And of course, every year there's always a, a switch over where students leave, people come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we came in September, I just remember some of the group were sort of like, what are we going to do this year? Um, are we still going to do something? And we had yeah. sort of Zoom meetings and I sort of said to them, look, you know, do you want to do something? Do you want to meet? Do you want to work on a recording? And they were very, everyone was keen to work on a recording. So, um, so we did it. So we made a plan and um, mm-hmm. I set these deadlines. I was writing my book at the time. So I was sort of, wow. I was almost keen for us to not do it. Cause I was like, I'm, I, I got wow. stuff to do, you know, I'm writing this book. I'm a bit stressed out. And they were like, no, let's do this. So um, we chose the songs and um, we had got some arrangements together okay. and I sent out the parts. Um, we, I, we met at one point and I gave everyone some stylophones and some equipment, some mm-hmm. microphones, some interfaces, all sorts wow. of things that they could record at home. And then, um, and then we just sort of farmed the pieces out and we just did it online. And um, as the pieces came back, I integrated them in logic into, um, I guess, a kind of demo arrangement. And then Mm -hmm. when, when it came around time about March, 2021, is that right? Yeah. 2021. um, We had some original pieces. So um, Susanna had written acoustic key by that point and I'd arranged it. Yeah. And we'd integrated that Harold Budd tribute as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we could go to Visconti studio and sort of record some more. And that was the day where we sort of met again and thought creatively. And we had sort of the bones of it at that point. And, um, and again, I was just, I was still so preoccupied with my book that I wasn't really even thinking much about it. I was just like, this is great. Yeah, let's just do this and put it together really quickly. And really didn't think much would come of it. I just thought this was like a, a project that, we would just do to spend our pandemic year having fun together. I didn't think mm-hmm. that we would ever get released or do anything like get played on the radio or anything like that. So it was a huge surprise to me that spun out of control records wanted to release it. Yeah, um, amazing. And it was yeah. just so surprising. And then we sort of started taking pictures. You were there for the photo shoot day in May and, <laughs> yeah. and all things started happening and it got mastered and it was sort of, uh, and I kind of came out of the fog of, of, of writing my book and I looked at it and I was like, it's actually quite good, you know. I think it turned out all right. And, um, and yeah, it, it wow. came out um, earlier this year and it's just done really well and it has an audience. And um, I'm so, I don't know, sh- not shocked, but just kind of, you know, really appreciative uh, of everyone who helped us along that journey and everyone like yourself who donated time and energy to it. From what began as like a kind of, you know, um, let's keep the group together during pandemic type project to actually something that I think all of us are quite proud of as an artistic object, you know, that we all worked on together. Um, So, yeah, it's just, yeah, and it was um, was really nice. It was a really nice thing to do, and I'm so glad we did it. Amazing. Um, the way we did it all the uh, all the struggles I, I mean I knew that it was a pandemic but I didn't realize the lengths you'd gone to to get everyone oh my gosh yes and involved so and, in, and the fact <laughs> that you were also finishing your book which we're going to talk about soon <laughs> yeah yeah it was um but I think wow. part of that was good because it just meant that um I think it helped the project because I think I didn't take over it. I think I have a tendency as an artist to, to um, if I, particularly if I'm working at home on a, on a 
project like an album I probably would have done too much of my own thing with it whereas because it was literally such a rush and I was just doing what the group was doing as well I put together these arrangements okay. um, it did feel like a group effort and not just me doing it and which was really important I think for everybody not just myself mm -hmm. um, it probably would have been easy for me to if I was bored during the pandemic to have completely finessed uh, uh, some kind of uh, unnatural object out of all of those things that I had, all those stylophone recordings. Um, but the fact that I kind of kept it a bit raw, kept it quite live, um, mm -hmm. didn't have the time to rearrange and, you know, remix or re-edit much of it. Mm -hmm. meant that what we had in the end felt true to everybody and everyone could hear themselves in it, which I think was was crucial as well. Yeah, it was really That's nice. Really cool. Amazing. Um, I, I love the fact that, as you're saying, you kind of just left everyone to kind of do their thing and make it really an individual but a group project at the same time. I feel like that's how you approach the, the orchestra as well, like everybody's sort of, whilst you're the leader, they're kind of allowed to just do their own thing and that's kind of what also makes the group, I feel. Do you? I'm glad you say that. Um, I hope so. I don't, um, well, I mean, I, I, I recognise my own sort of control freak tendencies and I really try not to uh, indulge those with the orchestra because it is a group it is a group effort and also I think it's important that everyone feels like they're contributing to it or have yeah. a say or have you know be able to express their opinion and for everyone to go that's a good idea let's try that mm -hmm. um, a good example would be like we have um, Richard in the group at the moment who's a, mm -hmm. uh, a noise artist and yeah. you know he brings an element of chaos to the group that's really unique but it's really important for me to also make room for him to be a noise artist in the group yeah. and for mm -hmm. us to be stylophone orchestra with a noise artist as a, a resident member yeah. um, we've got tommy at the moment who is bringing a mini log in which is mm -hmm. not a stylophone it's a it's a monosynth actually yeah. it's a polysynth um but <laughs> the fact that you know that that affords us an element of sound design which affords him an element of self-expression mm -hmm. and then ownership of the arrangements and the arrangements are quite exactly. i think by um, by necessity, they're quite um, strict in the sense that you know the the pieces are arranged, they're dictated down. You know the they're going to mm -hmm. be so long. There isn't a jam session. It's not like a yeah. standard where you can go off. Um, mm -hmm. But within that, I like I like everyone to have some kind of ownership of their sound and to be able to hear themselves shaping the collective sound as well. I think it's important. And you know that, and for that reason, the orchestra does change a little bit as members come and go, mm -hmm. um, because they bring the that beauty, to the table. It? Yeah, yeah. I, beauty. It's like something slightly different each time. It's never the same experience, and I'm sure that with your new uptake coming in the new academic year, that's only going to be more and more exciting. And hopefully, if there's anyone listening um, that wants to join, they will get in touch with you. Um, oh, please do. Yes, yes. Anyone who's in uh, London, particularly southwest London, but anywhere in London where you don't mind travelling to Kingston um, to rehearse, <laughs> we're, we're open. You don't have to be a music student or a Kingston student um, or even necessarily like a, um, a trained musician. Mm -hmm. um, you can join if you want to. There'll be a place for you. Um, just get in touch with me. It, the more the merrier, to be honest. So Stardophonica has enjoyed some incredible success. Um, why do you think it's been so successful? I honestly don't know. Um, I guess I guess because it's a little bit funny. I guess because 
it people expect it to sound um, juvenile and naive, and maybe it sounds a little bit surprisingly emotional. Um, I think mm-hmm. it's partly to do with the retrofuturistic um, so- songs we we do. So we do some Vangelis, we do some Jare, we do some Eno, mm-hmm. um, Wendy Carlos. So I think it's a mixture of of a kind of retro nostalgic. Um, emotion combined mm-hmm. with a surprise factor <laughs> with the instrument itself. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that people are expecting it to sound abrasive or childish and that it does sound that way, but it also sounds surprisingly deep and um, panoramic as well. I think, yeah, I, I guess it has a novelty factor, but at the same time, um, I'd like to think people like the care and effort that's gone into it and um, and that it takes itself seriously in a way, I suspect. But I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, I can't answer that question. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been incredible. You've been on um, BBC Six a few times. You've been in Electronic Sound magazine, um, loads of other publications. I know, right? As well. So yeah, it's something, right? <laughs> yeah, it's right. it's really great. I mean, um, just feeling so yeah honoured and. I'm thankful that people want to engage with it, that everyone that bought a copy, it's amazing. It certainly is. And I'm excited to see what, what else uh, come about from the group in this kind of format. Um, like a recording. Um, people have asked me and I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've got some ideas, but um, I think we need to, as a group, uh, think about the next steps. You know, we need to have mm-hmm. a, a band meeting <laughs> to discuss it. Yeah, definitely. But I wouldn't mind... Yeah, I wouldn't mind doing maybe um, some more classical or, you know, some game soundtracks or film soundtracks, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I know some of the members have mentioned um, doing like just more classic electronica. Um, some people want to do pop or sort of new wave or, okay. um, you know, 70s and 80s electronic pop. But um, we'd have to try and nail a concept. I think it needs to have a coherent um, theme, whatever we do next. That's very exciting. So many possibilities ahead. <laughs> yeah. This this is literally just scratching the surface, I think, with what can be achieved in this unique sound that you've found from the group. Um, so you obviously produced almost every track on this record, uh, including one original composition of yours, Brundle Beat, um, which actually the original also has a stylophone part, doesn't it? Which is yeah, really nice. yeah. Um, yes, that was um, it was a last minute addition. It wasn't going to be on the list, and um, and then uh, I think Gavin at the at the label was like, "There's room for for one more." <laughs> and right. so the group were we were practicing Brundle Beat at rehearsals just as a round to warm up with, um, and people suggested it. Isabella and Kian suggested it, and um, uh-huh. and I thought, well, okay, well, I've already got you know, Logic Project, what I did for Bird Rib, so we can hollow that out and put your performances in and replace some things. Uh, so it was relatively um, straightforward, but it was obviously obvious to do, and I don't know why we didn't think of it first. Oh, cool. Yeah, why not? Yeah. The one that you've already done with some stylophone. Yeah. Uh, the, the one stylophone composition I had in the bag and I didn't think of it. That's silly. Well, it was meant to be then, clearly. Um, yeah. So how did you find... Um, how did you find like producing it, mixing the record? I know you said it was all kind of quite organic and 
you didn't have a lot of time. Did you find any kind of useful approaches in that time with the stylophone in terms of arranging it, producing it, mixing it? Yeah. Um, as I said, because I was so focused on the book, um, mm -hmm. it was so, sort of helpful in the sense that I would sequester two days of my week to to do like a mix and send it. So it was very on the clock and um, mm -hmm. I was just kind of just getting through it. So I wasn't too um, engaged in perfectionist mode, I think helped in the end keep the spirit of the project and it has a vibe to it that isn't too um, overproduced, which was always a, um, a risk mm -hmm. with a project like this, particularly when you're doing a lockdown project and you, everyone's hands on it. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that um, I had a, a back to front sort of way of working with it so I had like okay. thinking about it like um composing like a cinematographer might I've got your background you've got your middle ground and your foreground and I would try and put stylophone sounds in each of those places to create perspective okay. and um oh. I would split the orchestra into left and right like almost in my head like if I was at um, Royal Festival Hall looking at LPO play um, you know you'd have sort of your violins ones and twos violas cellos basses and uh -huh. then from there I sort of think about mixing the parts in a similar way in the distance um, and I was using reverbs and filters um, okay. to get them to cohere and then in the foreground then the sounds would be more naked and then in Right. In the midground, they'd have a mixture of like spectral effects or delays, or um, they might be further out in the in the stereo field. So, I managed to sort of replicate that sort of image uh, on each of the tracks, and it, and it made short work of producing the the album in a sense that I had the orchestra sound kind of ready to go, not as a template necessarily, but just knowing how I wanted to stage the sounds. And then from there, it sort of made room for. Um, melodies, uh, articulations, effects, mm -hmm. um, Moog things that George was doing, beats um, or sequences uh, and vocals in, in some in some regards. So, yeah, I, I found it to be working quickly really good because um, I find sometimes if I work really quickly like that, you sort of your intuitive creator sort of kicks in and um, mm -hmm. you tend to make some good choices that you don't overthink, as I said before. Yeah. Um, and it was also good because, um, as I said, I could give the whole thing over to Kian, who mixed it for me, right. which was really lovely. Wonderful. And his, he's got a really good ear. Mm. Yeah, he's a member of the group, but he's also just a, a kick-ass sound engineer um, and mix mixer. I mean, the guy's ear is golden. And um, he was really great, so he could clean it up even further. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was nice to sort of have that collaborative team. And then so Ben Whiffen mastered it. And so, again, mm -hmm. it went off to someone else and it got mastered for vinyl. Then, of course, the vinyl came back. And so when you hear it at the end, it's kind of it wasn't like the whole just me, my job to do it all. It was, you know, I was relying mm -hmm. on everybody else to step in and help too. I feel like the approach that you have with the album that you've just talked about, I think that's like kind of how it was when you were starting the group as well. When you were trying to figure out what's the sound that we're going to have, it's sort of. I think, it, I think it changed a bit at different stages as well. And then you had the new instruments coming in, the, the 2020 S1. How was all of that? Kind of yeah. Um, so when we first started, it was, I think, um, everybody playing stylophones. But the stylophones sounded different back then. So this was before mm -hmm. the analog model. Yeah. And they had a, a, a rougher tone. Uh, in general, it didn't sound as attractive to my ear anyway. Um, <laughs> and part of, part of our 
our practice was to try and massage that sound a little. So being a, a producer myself and an engineer, my first solution was let's just put the sound through effects. Yeah. And that might help. So we could shape it. So I remember buying um, this like crazy, like parametric EQ and then putting it into reverb effects, yeah. but that it it worked in a sense, but it was not good for live because people couldn't hear themselves in right. that soup. Yeah. The more you massage the sound to make it more ambient, um, you know, on the good side of that is the the more ambient the sound is, the more attractive it is and the more you can do with it mm-hmm. as a colour. Yeah. Um, but it's not good for players because they can't hear themselves because there's no um, articulation, there's no fidelity in there. And then if you can, if everyone can hear themselves, then the sound is really rough and really bumpy, razor sharp. It's got edges to it that are really hard to work with and mm-hmm. the sound is less musically useful. And so yeah. we were having trouble finding a, a, a midpoint between those two things. Um, but then um, when we did the Tony Visconti day in the studio um he memorably this was a big change for us he he recorded us like a real string ensemble where he put like these Mm -hmm. microphones on top and we were Mm -hmm. playing just through the little speakers um and using the room ambience and this was much more I guess conducive to a good performance like all of a sudden the orchestra could hear themselves and hear where they weren't playing properly and he kind of put us through our paces and said you know you've got to start and end together you've got to be in tune you've got to play in time but actually we could hear it you know whereas before we really couldn't hear who was out of time or what was going on it was all a bit messy Mm -hmm. and so that was a really big moment for me where I discovered that actually the collective sound of stylophones together probably isn't using the audio out it's probably using the speaker and where everyone can hear each other like an orca- like a, an acoustic ensemble can and to actually mm-hmm. respond to each other and be expressive in the volume that's near them and to actually own the collective sound. And that's mm-hmm. what we've been doing kind of now. The orchestra, which I've always arranged to be string-like, um, so mm-hmm. it's always held notes, it's always harmonies, block harmonies, it's always lines that have a lot of phraseology to them. They've got sort of arcs. And mm-hmm. that's really how I treat the orchestra. And then all the other bits of the arrangement come in functionality from beats or from bass lines or from sound effects. And in those categories, those other sounds create the the full arrangement. But the centerpiece is this kind of cinematic sound of of this collected melody uh, with vibratos on usually. So it's this thick, rich line work and block harmony stuck work. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, um, the orchestra itself um, is really just the collected sound of the stylophones and it is like a string ensemble in my mind. Um, and then everything else is like the other parts of the orchestra. So, you know, the bass, you've got your, your brassy, you've got your, um, to, for me, the brass section is like the synth <laughs> sort of mono yeah. synth stuff mm-hmm. and the percussion section and your keyboard section and um, your sound effects. And then, but the main element is all the strings, the collected strings together. And that's how I imagine it. So that's why I say the more the merrier. We need more um, stylophone parts. And I think I also revised all that since the beginning, just to go back to your question. At the beginning, I had these like arrangements where I had like six, seven um, stylophone parts and I was trying to yeah. assign them out to people. Uh, but now these days it's three usually um, mm-hmm. and that does the job and so the the more people we have assigned to less parts the better the sound if we have 
less people assigned to more parts, then it starts to fray and get quite thin and get thinly spread like a web and it's not so musically effective. So, Mm -hmm. But that just comes through um, experience, I guess, and how ambitious I get with the arrangements. And, you know, sometimes our best arrangements, the ones that like go down the best are the ones where the style of friends are doing the easiest parts, but it works because everyone is um, tight and confident and that actually accounts for something as well. Tune in next week for part two of Leo Cardis's episode. If you're enjoying this episode so far, it would mean the world if you could give the podcast a five-star rating and share the episode on social media, tagging me at Mari Dangerfield and the podcast at Sound of Stylus. You can find us on Instagram at Sound of Stylus and on YouTube by searching Sound of Stylus.